the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together, and we've got a lot to cover today. In a few moments, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Paul Kenger of uh, Grove City College, and we will also spend a few moments talking with our old friend Todd Benzman about the Joe Biden uh, administration's policies on immigration. Uh, Should be interesting. All right, before I get to what you need to know, the Daily Wink, let me encourage you again, please go to ProAmericaReport.com and sign up for the Daily Wink. An email comes to you, no call. I don't sell you anything. I don't uh, send you much. I send you five emails a week uh, on the Daily Wink. So sign up over at ProAmericaReport.com. You won't regret it. Wink. The Daily Wink email, which goes, excuse me, which goes out at 8 a.m. East Coast time. 5 a.m. Pacific time is what you need to know. Some links, some stories, some things. Uh, you'll want to be on top of that. So let me first, let me tell you what you need to know today. And uh, there's a couple things. There's a couple things I'm going to tell you about. Um, one is uh, this National Guard story. The National Guard has been 25,000, maybe more thousand have been uh, called into Washington, D.C. to secure the inauguration. Uh, seems like overkill, but okay, whatever. I'm not going to judge it. It's one thing I do know is it, Nancy Pelosi made a show of meeting with the guard and seeming to be in charge of the guard. Um, but um, they uh, also then there was images of the guardsmen sleeping all over the uh, Capitol uh, in, on the marble floors. It made it look like a train station. It was kind of wasn't perfect. But you know what? You, you're in the military and in the National Guard. You're getting certain benefits by being in the guard. And so, you know, sometimes you're going to be called up. I don't think it was necessary. I think it's kind of troubling that we're paying the guardsmen to be away from their family, away from their jobs and all the rest. And uh, here we are. But, you know, again, I don't I'm not going to spend too much time um, getting uh, too overwrought about it, except there starts to be an incompetence problem because what happened in the last 24 to 36 hours is the guardsmen, it was, it has now been definitively reported, were pushed out of the Capitol when they were on their breaks or when they were away because 25,000 people is a lot of people and they were sent to a garage and they had to sleep in the garage and they had to spend their time in the garage. And so here's a couple things about that. Again, if you make, if you make if you're in the military and you get sent to some place and you got to sleep in a tent or you got to sleep on the ground, I, that's part of what you signed up for. You're probably sort of used to it or should be at least thought to be used to it, I, I think. The problem is, in this case, by the way, there was only two bathrooms, I'm told. That's reported, two bathrooms. But it's just terrible leadership. And here's what I suspect happened. In the two days before they were pushed into this garage, the Capitol, uh, there were images of the National Guard sleeping in the Capitol, sleeping against statues. It just was kind of, like I said, like a train station. And I suspect that the images were unflattering. I I know they were unflattering to the Capitol and therefore to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, who are the leaders now of the two uh, two, two, uh, uh, chambers. And so I suspect someone said to the Capitol Police Chief, who's an acting police chief, uh, I think it's a woman, I forget her name now, um, get, make that stop. 
And then she probably said to whoever's in charge of the National Guard, make that stop. And here's what I want. And so they did. And here's my point. Politicians are calling up the National Guard and disrupting their lives and spending money for political reasons. That's not impossible. Uh, That's not uncommon, I guess. It shouldn't happen. But again, I'm not going to be too uh, overwrought about that. I am going to say, who's using their judgment here? Who, who's using, and, and here's my thing. It feels like the judgment to put up barbed wire around the Capitol and, and shut the city of D.C. down, it seems like that was an overreaction. It seems like it was also an overreaction to get 25,000 troops. It's, and once you start using poor judgment regularly, you, you're going to be shown to be, it becomes a habit. You know, virtue is a habit. Vice is a habit. Meaning you start to do things and you have to, you do them over and over again because you get it's a habit. And my point in this case is this was really bad judgment over and over again. Now, again, I'm going to point this out at the same time. Joe Biden becomes president. Within a few hours, he signs an executive order saying that everybody must wear a mask and be socially distant on all federal property. I've questioned why that was necessary. I don't I have been to lots of federal property. I've never seen federal property currently in this city. Everything's federal where I could walk in without a mask. So why did he need that order? I'm not sure. But within minutes of the order, he showed up at federal property and didn't have a mask on. Now, I actually don't care if the president of the United States wears a mask or not. He will be protected, whether it was Trump or Biden. And the people around him will be willing to take the risk that they could be exposed, I suppose, to a president that has COVID. And I think everybody should get over that. There's certain people that get to have a double standard. In this case, Joe Biden is flaunting the double standard. But here's where it breaks down. When you have people that are condescending about their standards and then they invoke the double standard, they live the double standard, it's kind of, um, it's, 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 it's worse, right? It's, it's, it's let them, let them, uh, masks for thee and not for me. It kind of, it feeds into that sense of entitlement, sense of disconnection, a little bit like, for example, let's say it, when you're Joe Biden and you object strenuously to the fact that anybody's going to question your son about his business dealings, that's outrageous. Turns out his son had questionable business dealings, so much so that the FBI has an investigation. And again, normal people don't get to have multi-million dollar deals with foreign countries. I'm not saying, by the way, that you should, if you're a child of a president, you should go away and never be seen from. I, I actually think it's not easy. But the double standard that is so obvious is, and then we're all supposed to look the other way. Here's the problem. I, I actually think that Donald Trump did not have the double standard quite like he couldn't get away with it. And he didn't try to get away with it. He wasn't actually, he wasn't embarrassed that his kids were going to have a, a business and that they weren't going to divest their things. He wasn't, he wasn't ashamed of it. He wasn't going to be, I, I, anyway, so, but that's what, that's the, the, that's the Biden beginning. That's the beginning of the Biden administration. And here's the crazy part. They published the polling for Joe Biden at the beginning of his, of, of his presidency. He's at 48% approval rating. By, uh, Obama was at 65% and, and uh, Trump was in the 50s. Why would Biden be so in the negative uh, uh, direction here? Isn't that kind of weird? Isn't it kind of strange? It seems strange to me. It makes you kind of wonder about uh, the results of the election, I think. It kind of reinforces some of our concerns. But there you have it. All right, one last comment on what you need to know. It's a big one today. I got a bunch of stuff in here. I'm getting, I've been kind of bouncing around all day in terms of some of what's happening. 
I mentioned in a Periscope, and you can follow me at Eagle Ed Martin on Twitter, Ed Martin Live on Facebook. I mentioned on a Periscope that Susan Rice is the most powerful uh, person in government. And she's, I, I don't have a lot of respect for her. I think she's really done some terrible things. She's, I don't know her, but I think she's done some terrible deeds. I, don't, I really don't trust her at all. And she's the deputy president. That's my position. She would be the number two. She's running, basically running government. She's the head of the Domestic Policy Council, but she used to be national security advisor. So she knows national security and she's domestic policy. Well, in the executive order, the racist executive order that the president signed, President Biden signed on the first day in office, it says effectively people should be treated, treated differently based on their race and, and sex and uh, LGBT status under, under this executive order, because in the past they may have been treated badly, and the only way to make things better is to treat them differently now. So discriminate to make it right. That's what they're asking for. It feels racist to me. But anyway, that's the way we've talked about the executive order. We could talk more about it. It's really wrong. It's dividing the country. It's terrible. And Susan Rice, in the executive order has been put in charge of implementing that. And my point is only to hammer home. The most important person in America is that's not Joe Biden, is not Chuck Schumer, not Nancy Pelosi, not Kamala Harris. It's a woman named Susan Rice. And she's the one who lied about Benghazi, who misled America. I don't know if she lied about it. I think she did lie, but I mean, she misled America over and over again on national TV. She's the one that targeted, uh, helped target Mike Flynn. She's the one that unmasked lots of Americans. And now in this monumental executive order that targets Americans by their hyphens, we have, a, we have Susan Rice in charge. Oh, man, this is not going to turn out well for this country. All right, uh, we got to run. We got to take a break. When we come back. We'll talk with Dr. Paul Kengor of Grove City College and then Todd Benzman about uh, immigration. Todd Benzman is a, an expert on the immigration issues and is really, really good to uh, talk to about these issues. So we'll talk with Todd Benzman and we'll make sure he writes... Um, he writes pretty frequently over at uh, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to make sure I give you the right website, um, and uh, he will we'll talk to him in a minute. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin, oh, CIS, Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. Take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is our old friend, Dr. Paul Kengor. And of course, Dr. Kengor, for those of you that are frequent listeners, is a professor at political, a professor of political science and uh, over at uh, uh, Grove City College and also the chief academic fellow of the Institute for Faith and Freedom. He writes prolifically books and others, and he had a column a few, about a week ago, uh, and the title is The Gift of the Lottery. I really like this, Paul, because um, I was chief of staff to the governor in Missouri, and there was lots of people who wanted to expand the um, uh, game gaming. And so I dug into the, the, the value of gaming and the taxes of gaming, gambling, full gambling. And, of course, it spun over into right. looking at the lottery. And the lottery, just like gambling, um, they all say, oh, my gosh, it's going to be great. We'll have all these taxes, which we'll use for, for kids and veterans. And then as soon as they raise the money, they just take away the money that they were using for kids and veterans and use it from the lottery. But anyway, welcome back, Dr. Kengar. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. And, and you're right. In fact, um, I, I despise the word gaming, right? I mean, they, yeah. that's one of the kind of tricky things that they've done is, you know, they've taken gambling and kind of removed the P and the L, right? Because it's, you know, it's just like gaming. It's just like playing a game, you know, like playing Scrabble, right? Yeah. Like playing Scrabble, you know, yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, yeah. maybe playing, uh, playing basketball, maybe, maybe playing baseball. 
Yeah, but but in fact, what's happened is you you know if, I'm I'm well I'm not old enough to remember this, but my grandfather used to tell me he was um, he was Italian. He worked in the steel mills. Um, yeah, my my relatives they worked in the coal mines, Western PA, and there was always the uh, the mobster, the you know uh, Gino, Nick, whoever, where they would be in the locker room running the numbers racket. They called it the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it yep. was uh, you know what what one of my uncles called the the private sector lottery, right? The private yeah, yeah. sector lottery, <laughs> and then and then and then one day you know government comes along and says, hey, uh, you know I I know we've been saying that this is a vice for all these years, but uh, you know we we can do good things with this, right? So it's mm-hmm. not a vice anymore, and the government comes along and nationalizes it. Basically, and you know, anybody that objects, any liberals, you just come up to them, put your arm around them and say, hey, but this is money that's going to go to education and the elderly, right? And the liberal swoons. Oh, okay. And, and, and you know, so just like that, the, the government nationalized the numbers racket. And states like mine in Pennsylvania, every year they take your tax dollars and they not only – they not only run this racket, this big ripoff scheme, but but they they run commercials at Christmas time, right? And, right, and right. you know, promising people riches, tens of thousands of dollars, and and uh, as I noted in this article that you're referring to, I see these lottery tickets twice. Once if I go into a sheets, and I'm behind a guy buying a, a carton of cigarettes and a 64 ounce Mountain Dew and a bunch of lottery tickets. And I do when I go in my front yard and uh, and pick them up out of the front yard when somebody cruises by at night and throws out a couple, you know, six pack of uh, empty Schlitz uh, or uh, <laughs> Budweiser <laughs> beer bottles and a bunch of scratched off lottery tickets. And you know, I don't, that's, I don't, that's I don't, who the liberals yeah. are selling their lottery tickets to. I thought the liberals cared about these guys, Ed. Well, I like. I'm going to say I like hanging out in your neighborhood. I might have come down there. It sounds like a fun place. Uh, the uh, but uh, but you know, let, let me let me ask you about this. Um, I don't know the answer as I ask this, and and we're talking with Dr. Paul Kengor, and and again, in all seriousness, is Grove City College and and heads up the Institute for Faith and Freedom, an organization. Uh, I mean, a, a part of Grove City College. Um, did did did? I, and I have a great my great uncle. Um, he he used to tell a famous story that he once hit the numbers. He bet, bet the numbers, and the numbers that that time in Hoboken, New Jersey, where he was from, uh, was the last three three or four digits of the attendance at one of the horse uh, tracks nearby. And so think about how easy it would be for the mafia to fix that one, right? <laughs> they didn't have, yeah, to, they didn't yeah. have to work too hard to yeah. fix the attendance. At, Hoboken, but anyway, New but, Jersey, that's, uh, that's Frank Sinatra's hometown. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Frank, yeah, Sinatra, right, yeah right. Frank Sinatra territory. So, so um, but I wonder about this. So in other words, uh, gambling as a vice has existed through all time. And as you point out, there's nothing nothing more um, disturbing than when our our government decides to get in the business of that vice. But I wonder, in this sense, a lot of people do play the government sponsored uh, lottery and they play it with this eye to thinking like, oh, this might be my chance to get out. And so here's my question, uh, Dr. Paul Kengor. Is it worse now? Because in some sense, for a couple of decades, people have felt like things were drifting away in terms of opportunities. You know, they were, and now we're talking about sort of a political question, you know, there's the sort of Trump voters who are saying, you know, jobs are going to China. Oh, I'll just take a, I'm desperate. I'll take a, a shot at this. Or is it just, a, you know, the sort of habit of a vice of gambling? Is it, you know, what do you, because it feels like people play them more than they ever did the lottery. 
Yeah, I think so. And 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 I, I know. I, well, I, do I know this like for a statistical fact? I, I mean, what I what I've seen certainly anecdotally in my own life, Ed. I didn't say this in the article because I I, I wouldn't want to get in trouble with one of my relatives. But but I I, ha, I have an aunt, and and every year she she would give lottery tickets as Christmas gifts. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that she was my poorest aunt. Right? She was the huh. one. She was the one who um, could never make her mortgage payments. Was always on welfare. Um, mm-hmm. She was she was the, the member of the family who 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 was the, who was the least successful in that sense. And and you know that, that's the kind of people who um, very often. Um, s- s- blow waste more money on lottery tickets. I mean, I guess I could see you know anybody coming home from work when the Powerball is worth a billion dollars or whatever, and it's being talked about. So you know you go in and and you buy one ticket just for fun, right? But right. Uh, you know, for for every person who does that, I mean, th- there's a lot of them who go in and 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 blow a lot of money every week. Mm-hmm. On, on, right. on something that is deliberately calculated by government to make sure that you will not get the money from that that you invested in it. And, and, and I find this interesting. If, if conservatives were running lotteries, or let me put it this way, if there was a private sector company that deliberately ripped off people like this, that made sure that you didn't get a return for your investment on your money, every liberal in Congress would be yelling and screaming to shut it down. In fact, it mm-hmm. wouldn't even exist. It'd be gone already. And speaking of vices, look after how they went after tobacco companies, right? Right, you know, look, right. Look how they did that. Look how they shut those down. But here in this case, you, you have liberals who are supposed to be progressives. Um, here embracing a very regressive plan, policy, ripoff scheme um, to get people's money. But again, right, hey, it goes to the elderly. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Education. Oh, that's good money. Right. That's good. Right. It's, it's, it's like, it's like a, 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 not a laundry scheme. What, what do they call it um, when, they, when they wash your government? Laundering. It's all, it's, it's yeah, money, money laundering. Yeah. Money laundering, right. Like yeah. taking money and turning it into work. We'll clean this up, right? Um, you know, you, we'll, we'll take the guy who's buying the lottery tickets and the 64-ounce Mountain Dew. We'll do good with, with, with his money. But, but right. it, it, it disproportionately, I think, hurts lower-class people, um, certainly more than it does upper-class people. We're talking with Dr. Paul Kengor, and he's referring to one of his columns that ran. I'll put it up on social media. Uh, Paul, let me, let me switch uh, gears a little because uh, you're also one of the, the voices uh, that I, I uh, rely on when I think about the, 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 the um, communism, its history, its, uh, its uh, relationship to the American uh, government. And, you know, um, and we're watching now, uh, and the one I want to ask you about, I don't know if you saw it closely, but um, the um, – Joe Biden signed an executive order, and he put extraordinary powers in his domestic policy advisor Susan Rice uh, and her domestic policy council. And she's a she's a one of the one of the worst to me one of the worst people in American life uh, in many ways. But now the policy is this: you you're not you must discriminate against. Uh, uh, people, you must discriminate in favor of African Americans, minorities, LGBT, others to to seek equity. 
because equality isn't sufficient. Equity is what's needed. And the, and the only way to get to equity is to discriminate in favor of these groups that you decide have been oppressed and are oppressed. I, you know, where does this end? Yeah, well, well, this is the whole hook of uh, speaking of, of addictions. Right? I, I mean, liberals are absolutely addicted to gender, not just gender identity, but identity politics across the board. And in fact, I'll give you another example from my state of Pennsylvania. And um, and this is my most recent piece at American Spectator. I should have sent this to sent this to you, Ed. The uh, our new assistant health secretary is Rachel Levine. Who, who was who was the, the health secretary for the state of Pennsylvania. Rachel Levine is the highest ranking transgender official in, in the United States. And Joe Biden has tapped her um, biologically him. Right. It's a it's a he who I who identifies as a she gender identity is a she um, Biden tapped Rachel Levine to be his new assistant health secretary. And and those of us in Pennsylvania, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with this, Ed, but um, I mean, we all know what happened with nursing homes and COVID-19 patients in New York under Andrew Cuomo, angry Andrew Cuomo. What most people don't realize is it happened in Pennsylvania, too, after Cuomo did it first. And, and I document this in my spectator piece. We actually at one point late last May, 70 percent of Pennsylvania deaths with COVID deaths were in nursing homes when the number was only 19% in New York. And, and, and that was a, a direct result of, of Levine doing what she did by, you know, by misdirecting COVID patients into Pennsylvania nursing homes. So you would, and Biden of all people um, tapped Levine to be his assistant health secretary and, and cited her, um, his, her COVID-19 work. And, and wow. everybody reading that knows, and, and, if, and if you read the statement from Biden, he refers to it as a historic choice. And, and it's historic in his mind because of the most important factor in his mind and in liberals' minds that Levine is transgender. And, and, and yeah. above all, th- th- this is what's motivating th- these people. It's, it's not their qualifications. It's not their actions. It's about checking boxes on, on, on these different uh, identity politics categories. Liberals look at you not as an individual, but, but as a person to be put in a category. You're white, you're black, you're gay, you're not gay, you're transgender, you're, you're Hispanic, you're Latino, you're Latina. It, it, it's, it's awful what they've done. It's the complete opposite of Mar- what Martin Luther King Jr. said, judge people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin or, or some other identity. They are hooked on identity politics. And, um, and yeah, that very much relates to Samantha Power. You're going to see this across the board with the Biden administration over the next four years. It's terrifying and it's uh, worrying. But, um, well, anyway, thank you, as always, Dr. Paul Kengor. i got to run. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll have you back on, Dr. Paul Kengor. And uh, we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's been a little while since we've had our old friend Todd Bensman from over at the Center for Immigration Studies on, and I'm glad to get him back. He is uh, the uh, national senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. Go to CIS, C as in center, I as in immigration, and S as in center, CIS.org, and you'll find all of his uh, writings there. He's got a piece up from uh, earlier this week. The title's Trump's Travel Ban Fixed a Real-World Security Problem. 
This is very important to me. I talked about it on the, the uh, inauguration day that uh, President uh, Biden said dramatically, I'm getting rid of the Muslim ban as if it was about Muslims and not about uh, travel and uh, being smart. So uh, welcome, Todd Bensman, to the program. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, so this is this is real. I told you off the air. It's really important to me because I, I fear when we make decisions and talk about them in ways that are uninformed, in my opinion. Uh, I think President Biden did certainly do his uh, uninformed. He may be informed in his decision. He talks about it in a way that's disingenuous. So walk us through Trump's so-called travel ban and what the real world security problem it addressed was and is. Sure. First, I just want to start out by saying that, that the countries on the list, the travel ban list, uh, amount to 8% of the world's Muslim population. That is an absolutely uh, erroneous uh, 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 characterization of the policy to call it a Muslim travel ban. Right. Uh, but, having said, uh, but having said that, uh, countries are on that list for a reason. The, each one of the countries, if you look at there's 13 of them, if you look at each one of the 13, uh, you'll notice that they are countries that have no government. So when people apply from visas uh, for, for visas uh, to the U.S. from a country like that, we are unable to do security vetting of those visa applicants to determine if they're terrorists or criminals or uh, you know militia members or have blood on their hands or are wanted for something because places like Libya don't have working governments. Uh, Somalia, another one that does not have has not had a working government for years and years. And so in order to prevent us having to just gamble, roll the dice with people coming, you know, military age guys uh, coming in on student visas, uh, no, no idea wh- where they, what their experience was. We blocked all the travel from there, except for um, some cases where there were, uh, you know, pressing circumstances of some kind. The other kind of country that were that were put on the ban are countries that are hostile to the United States. Think Venezuela and Myanmar. Uh, those are not even Muslim countries, but they are diplomatically estranged. We can't call up the military junta in Myanmar to ask for a, an intelligence share or a criminal background history on somebody who's applied for a visa from there. Okay? Same with Venezuela. So the point is, is that when you block visa travel from those countries, you eliminate, you reduce the threat of terrorism. Uh, you, you, you do a good homeland security solid when you do when when you block that kind of travel. In my story uh, that you mentioned on the air a minute ago, I, I described three specific cases that were pre-ban when people came in on visas and turned out to be terrorists. And luckily, we caught them and prosecuted them. But those cases never would have had to happen had there been a. Muslim, I'm sorry, whether, whether there had been a, a travel ban in those cases from Muslim countries. Uh, the other thing that I'll mention here, and you can interrupt me anytime, is that yeah. there are many, there are many uh, Muslim countries that are not on the list on purpose. And it's not because they produce oil. 
Saudi Arabia is on that list because they have a working government and a collaborative relationship with our intelligence agencies. When we need to check on somebody, we can call the Saudis and they'll give us an intelligence feed. Same thing with Jordan, same thing with Egypt, same thing with a lot of Muslim countries. And that's why they're not on the list. So uh, we're talking, yeah, we're talking with, yeah, yeah, uh, we're talking with Todd Benzman and Todd. I want to ask you about this. I, I, I never knew that number. Eight percent of the of the uh, of the countries on the so-called travel ban, the Muslim travel ban. Eight, you say eight percent. Uh, they represent eight percent of the Muslim population. In other words, you, it, there's no travel ban on Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim country in the world. I mean, there's, and so it's not. It, it, you're 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 what you're saying is it's never been based on Muslimness. Yes, some of them are a majority Muslim country, but that wasn't the point. It's the point of what the chaos is in those countries that make it a security threat. So what happens when that drops? Now that now the Biden administration says, OK, no, can you come in from those countries now or is there still a visa visa process, but it's just a, a terrible one? What what happens practically? Practically, uh, my understanding and um, I haven't I, I, I haven't seen the uh, sausage made on that yet, but it appears to me that it'll be business as usual pre pre ban that people from Yemen uh, who want to come, uh, you know, go teach, uh, go learn English in some university here or school here, uh, will be able to come on in. Uh, people from Somalia, and the, the demand is pent up because they've been held back for uh, four years. And so there'll be a lot of people coming in, and I'm guessing that you'll see uh, television cameras at airports of, you know, uh, hugging family members, reuniting, and it'll be a big good news story until the day that, the cases that I mentioned that I wrote about start happening again, and those will happen. Uh, I really hope I'm wrong, but I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to make a prediction that within a year or two, uh, you'll start seeing uh, prosecutions for terrorism. Those are the ones that we catch and terrorist attacks uh, like Mm. the one on Ohio state university campus by a uh, Somali who was let in before the ban and went bad. Mm. Uh, well, again, we're talking with uh, Todd Benzman, who's at the uh, Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. His writings are there. And um, uh, Todd is the, I mean, you know, my, I often, my listeners know I often talk about my wife. And my wife will often say, why don't they talk? And I know you do. Uh, Todd uh, Benzman is the national, senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies about the board, about the immigration security, especially the border, related to terrorism. Um, what, do we, what can we expect? The President Biden said, stop building the wall. Well, that's not the only thing that stops the people from coming across the border. But what else can we expect now? We've got caravans coming towards us. Are, are we dealing with a national security threat inside those already? Well, yeah, there are a lot of different kinds of threats. And the, uh, the national security threat is also there from the fact that that a great many of the migrants who are pent up back behind pandemic-related border closures in Latin America are from the very countries that I'm talking about here with the travel ban. The travel ban just stopped visas, but people from all of those countries are in Panama, Costa Rica, uh, Mexico, on their way here to cross the border. And likewise, we'll have no idea who they are when they get to the border. Uh, when there's a, a large surge of migration that, of the sort that is now predicted, 
with caravans among the thousands and thousands of migrants showing up at the border. Uh, that increases the odds that we will just simply wave them in or let them in without really ever vetting them again or knowing who they are. Those are called special interest aliens. They smuggle in from all over the, the world from terror countries. I have a book called America's Covert Border War, which uh, publishes February uh, 9th and is all about that particular threat, what's true, what's not. Uh, that is a, uh, a very real issue, and, it, and it, the threat heightens when there are, especially when there's large-scale illegal immigration to camouflage them, just like in Europe, uh, what happened in Europe. The, uh, the book, again, we're talking with Todd Benzman of Center for Immigration Studies. The book is called America's Covert Border War, the untold story of the nation's battle to prevent jihadist infiltration. Uh, available, I'm just looking at it, I, I checked, it's on townhall.com, and uh, you, can, you can pre-order, it comes out February 9th. Hey, uh, Todd, thank you, uh, time flies, but we'll have you back on when this book comes out. I think it's important. We're going to obviously have a, a conversation about immigration in a way that we did in the last four years with the Biden administration and the uh, Senate and House. So uh, appreciate your perspective and your writings. And again, it's Center for Immigration Studies, CIS.org. I'll put it up on social media. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, Ed. All right. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we're upholding the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly, grassroots activist, author of 27 books, and articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Now, Here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. When you were taught about how American government was designed to work, identifying the three branches of government was probably at the top of the list. From the time we were young, we were told about the distinct roles of the legislative, judicial, and executive branches, as well as the unique system of checks and balances that separates them. The Founding Fathers carefully crafted a system to prevent any one person or group from becoming powerful enough to subvert the will of we the people. However, this fundamental function of our government has come under attack from the most unlikely of sources. The judicial branch, which the Founders called the weakest of all branches, is staging a complete takeover. These unelected judges have gone from providing impartial adjudication of individual cases to passing legislation from the bench. Phyllis Schlafly called these judicial supremacists because they believe their opinion of what the law should be is more important than what the law actually is. As the judiciary seizes more and more power, there's no limit to what part of your life they will reach into. If you don't believe me, just consider the cases they've already decided. They take up cases about the validity of the Pledge of Allegiance, prayer, the Ten Commandments, the definition of marriage, the definition of gender, and even the very definition of personhood. Why would we ever want to leave such big decisions to a body of nine unelected lawyers? What makes a lawyer more equipped to define what marriage should be? What makes a lawyer a good arbiter for where prayer should and should not be allowed? When the Founding Fathers designed the three branches of government, they never imagined a system where nine unelected lawyers could tell the entire nation's children to stop praying at the beginning of each school day. It's time for conservatives to take back the courts. First of all, these activist judges should be rooted out and denied confirmation before they ever make it to the courts. Second, congressional action should be taken to reassert legislative control of the legislative process. Don't let your life be run by nine lawyers. Let's take a stand together against judicial supremacy. 
This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Can activist judges be stopped, or will they continue to overturn laws with no regard for the Constitution or the will of the people? Connect with us at phyllisschlafly.com to hear alerts on rulings made by never-elected supremacist judges and to share your viewpoint. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, let's talk on this last uh, segment tonight of what you need to do window about pro-life. Pro-life. You know, on Friday, uh, as I watched, I went over to the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol, and I sort of just stood there thinking about how um, crazy it is that we live in a nation that has Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions that were made on uh, on uh, January twenty second, nineteen seventy three, creating out of whole, creating out of whole cloth uh, the notion of a protected privacy right for abortion, basically. And that was a poli- that, that was a political position, a policy position that was engineered through the courts. It was a terrible betrayal of, of our legal system and our values. And all these years later, it's still on the books. And although we have some hope, the court is more conservative and maybe it takes it up. They haven't yet. And um, but here's the reality. Um, there are some there's some good news. I did a I did a I had a conversation on uh, radio last night. I think it was with um, a liberal and he said, oh, it's great. Used to be a million abortions a year. It's down to somewhere around 400,000. That is good. I mean, I mean, it's directionally good. It's better than it was in terms of but it's still horrifying. 400,000 abortions a year. Horrifying. It's really one of the saddest things about our nation. And so but here's how I want to what, what I want you to do is I want you to think about this news. More young people are pro-life than ever before. And it's in large part because of the technology that we've seen. And so the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I worked and who spent a bunch of her career working on the pro-life issues um, and uh, fighting to keep the pro-life plank in the Republican Party, she was really cool uh, and interesting about saying how technology and she was um, at the end of her life. She was not I mean, she was she used a computer and all, but she wasn't on social media, didn't wasn't smartphones. But she was very I mean, she said technology is what changed the equation. The ultrasound was extraordinary for changing how people saw what was going on. Now we have the ultrasound, 3D ultrasounds, 3D printing of an embryo uh, uh, in utero. So the baby in the belly, you can see it printed. You can print a, a sort of version of that. So all these technologies are making a huge difference. So we should today, what you need to do is celebrate the technologies that are making it possible for us to see and feel and know what's going on. And it's changing hearts and minds. There's a whole bunch of people that are uh, under the age of about 25. They've never not, not seen ultrasounds, 3D ultrasounds. So they're very, it's, they're like, that's something. You can't tell me that's just a clump of cells. I'm not buying that. By the way, there's a bunch of people from 25 years old to probably 50 that have uh, just, they've been convinced that it's a clump of cells and they're, they like the idea of the, of the uh, political argument or whatever. And they're, they're, they're pro-abortion, they're pro-choice, so-called. Um, you know, that, that language has been powerful choice. So 
What we need to do, what you need to do, and what you and I need to do is celebrate the success of technology in changing hearts and minds and take advantage of it. Take advantage of sharing that news and spreading that word and, and finding ways to uh, to convince people. One of the great parts of the Heartbeat Bill movement, which took uh, root a few years ago, um, and Janet Porter deserves great credit for that, is that it really spread the word, uh, that spread the messaging of the Heartbeat. Boom, 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 you have a heartbeat. It just changes. Don't, don't. When there's a heartbeat, there's something there, right? In the TV, movies, and television shows, if someone's laying on the ground, knocked out, they, they feel for their heartbeat. They listen for their heartbeat. So it makes a difference. So it's a day where we feel a sense of sadness, especially with the direction of some of the leadership in the country. On the other hand, we celebrate uh, the successes, too, and we ask uh, forgiveness for our failures and ask for blessings on our nation and that life be respected in all forms. So thank you, as always, to Noah, our great technical director, Joanna, for booking our guests, and you for listening. We'll be back next week. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.